as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. As I said just a moment ago, I preached through the entire book of Colossians uh, at another church a number of years ago, and having studied through the whole book carefully, I believe that this verse and this idea contained in this verse is the central idea of the whole book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6 is, I believe, what we could say is the thesis statement of Colossians. Paul is writing to the Christians in the city of Colossae about the sufficiency of Christ and the importance of fidelity or faithfulness to that principle that Christ is sufficient. He is writing to encourage them with this idea and to reiterate this idea and to press upon them this idea that Christ is sufficient because the Colossians are encountering various challenges to that very principle. So my message this morning will consist of two points. Firstly, how the Colossians received Christ Jesus the Lord. And secondly, how they ought, therefore, to continue walking in Him, since that's the structure of this thought. As you received Him, so continue in Him. Well, how did they receive Him then? Let's look at that first, and then how should they continue walking in Him? So firstly, how the Colossians received Christ Jesus the Lord. The Colossians received Christ Jesus the Lord as all-sufficient for their salvation and for their religious life. I say all-sufficient for their salvation and their religious life to delimit and to clarify what we mean when we say the sufficiency of Christ. Because, of course, faith in Christ didn't negate the Colossians' real bodily needs for food. Nor did the sufficiency of Christ negate the need for soap and water to get clean. Nor did the sufficiency of Christ negate their need for money to buy things at the market. And so there is a sense in which the Colossians truly and genuinely needed other things than Christ. But when it comes to salvation, when it comes to religious life, Jesus was all the Colossians needed. And that is how the Colossians received him. As all they needed. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 21 tells us that the Colossians who were now Christians were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's how they were. The people that Paul's writing to now, they weren't always Christians. At one point, they were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And this is the way it is with the whole human race. The scripture says that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, how many of us? Everyone to his own way. There is none righteous. Is that an exaggeration? No. Not one. It's not just a general principle. Without exception. There is none righteous. No, not one. We have turned everyone to his own way. So we could say rightly, that it wasn't just the Colossian converts who were once 
alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. But it is also each and every one of us who now may be Christian. We weren't born Christians. And we weren't even born neutral towards God. We were born at enmity with God, the scripture says, because of mankind's fall into sin in the beginning through Adam. Ephesians 2 and verse 3 tells us that we are all, quote, by nature, children of wrath. Paul explains then, in view of all these realities, in another epistle that he's writing, in Romans chapter 7 and verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? See, this is our plight. This was the Colossians' plight. This is our plight. This is the plight of everybody out there today. This is the plight of our family members and our friends. Wretched people that we are. Who will deliver us? But Paul goes on to answer his own question in Romans chapter 7. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul had received Jesus as the Christ the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Promised One, the Expected One. And he had received him as the Lord, the King, the King of Kings, the name above every name, the one who has been given a kingdom and dominion and authority and whose rule and reign shall know no end. Paul, in his plight, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me, had glimpsed Jesus as the Christ, as the Lord, who could actually deliver him from this plight. And so Paul turned away from being alienated and hostile in mind toward Jesus, doing evil deeds. And Paul became a proclaimer that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is the rescuer from sin and the one to whom we all owe our allegiance. The only one that we need to get free from the wretchedness and the cursedness of sin. The only one that we need to watch over us and to protect us and to provide for us throughout our lives. This was the message that Paul went around preaching after he considered his dilemma and after he considered that Christ Jesus was the solution and the answer to the dilemma. Paul went around preaching this. And this wasn't just... Paul's unique and quirky take on things. This was what all the apostles were preaching. This is what all of the ministers of the gospel were preaching in these early days of the Christian church, which means that this was what Epaphras was preaching, who is the guy who started the Colossian church. Epaphras went to them and said, look, you and me, I'm not being self-righteous, you and me, we're all wretched people. We got a big problem because all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. There is none righteous. No, not one. Who will rescue us wretched people then? Who will deliver us? Listen, I got good news for you. It's Jesus. He will deliver us. And he is a sufficient savior. He is all you need. This is what was preached to the Colossians. <clears throat> and this is 
what the Colossians believed. This is how they received him then. They received him. As Colossians 1.15 and following puts it. As the image of the invisible God. Now we know who God is. Seeing Christ Jesus, we have seen the Father. We received him as the firstborn of all creation that is exalted above all creation. We receive him as one through whom and for whom all things were made. We receive him as the one who is before all things and in whom all things hold together. We receive him as the head of the church. There is no other head. We are, we are loyal to Christ Jesus alone and we pledge our allegiance to him as the head of the church. We receive him as the firstborn from the dead, which means that there is going to be secondborns and thirdborns, the first fruits from the dead, which means that there's going to be more fruits and vegetables growing from the dead after him. We receive him as preeminent. We receive him as one in whom all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. We receive him as the one through whom we are reconciled to God. Paul's not giving them new information in Colossians. He's reminding them. He is reminding them. This is who Jesus is. You know that full well. You received him as this. You heard this message from Epaphras. That this is who Jesus is. Do you get the idea from Colossians 1? I mean, I just, I just pulled a few things from it. But even in what I just said, do you get the idea, if you've never read the whole chapter, even from what I just said, do you get the idea that Jesus is semi-sufficient for salvation and religious life? Do you read Colossians 1 and you think, yeah, Jesus helps? Of course not. You get the idea coming through loud and clear when you read through Colossians 1, of which I just skimmed and excerpted. You get the idea coming through loud and clear in Colossians 1. Jesus is all you need. And when it comes to salvation and religious life, therefore, you don't have to add anything to Jesus. Jesus is everything that a lost sinner, alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, needs. If anyone here in person or watching online is not yet a Christian and is still alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, I want to be crystal clear with you this morning. That Christianity is not a religion of pulling yourselves up by your own bootstraps. Christianity is not a religion of self-improvement or becoming good enough for God. Christianity is a religion of abandoning all hope of anything else or anyone else saving you from the wrath of God that is coming on account of your hostility and your evil deeds. And trusting in Christ alone for salvation from your sin. His righteousness and His righteousness alone is sufficient to cover you so that you may stand spotless and blameless before God on Judgment Day. 
with no blemishes for God to point out. His substitutionary, vicarious death on the cross and his death alone is sufficient to turn away that just wrath of God from you. The penalty has already been meted out, and so it doesn't have to be meted out upon you again on Judgment Day. Jesus died for that. It is only in Jesus and only through Jesus that you may call God the Father, your Father. It is only in Jesus and through Jesus that God's Spirit comes to apply all of the covenantal blessings and benefits to your life, including His indwelling presence. Jesus is all you need for salvation and for religious life. That is how the Colossians received Jesus. And as Paul says, <clears throat> as you received him, so walk in him. Let's examine now, secondly, how the Colossians ought, therefore, to continue walking in Jesus. And the answer is simple, real simple. The Colossians ought to continue to view Christ Jesus the Lord as all-sufficient for their salvation and their religious life. Simple as that. There was some false teaching creeping into the Colossian church at the time of Paul's writing to them. And the exact specifics of this false teaching are subject to some debate among theologians. And I won't, I won't bother to try to resolve all of those questions and controversies this morning. But the basic contours of the false teaching that was coming into the church are clear enough. And theologians are agreed about this. This false teaching that was coming into the church was attacking the very idea that I was just preaching. That Jesus is all you need. That was the nature of the false teaching that was creeping in to the church. And in response to this, Paul emphasizes the point that he first makes in chapter 1 and verse 19. Which is that in him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul emphasizes that point, which he states first in 119, by repeating the same point in chapter 2 and verse 9. He says again, in him, that is in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So he said that twice. I've cited John Deal on this idea before because his exposition of this concept is so excellent. And so therefore I will do that again today. Gill argues that if we understand the phrase, the fullness of God, dwelling in the Son, to mean that the perfections of God the Father are also in the Son, namely eternity, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, etc., etc. If we understand that that's what's meant by the phrase, the fullness of God, then the statement in chapter 1 and verse 19 would actually not make a lot of sense. And it would actually um, be outside of what we now would consider Christian orthodoxy. Because these things, eternity, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, etc., 
are not in the Son because God was pleased to put them into Him, so to speak. Rather, these things are naturally and necessarily in the Son because of the Son's, quote, participation of the same undivided nature and essence with the Father and the Spirit. You see, the Son of God is not God because the Father created Him and filled Him with the fullness of God. The Son is God because He is eternally co-equal with the Father. Right? So, if what Paul means by the fullness of God is all the perfections and attributes of God, in other words, the essence of Godness, if I could say it that way, then because Jesus is the Son of God, we can't say that God was pleased to dwell in Him, that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Him, as if that's a choice God made. Rather, we would need to say that the fullness of God was naturally and necessarily in Him. Okay? So we would, we would read it like this then. In Him, the fullness of God naturally and necessarily dwells. Right? That's how 19 would read. If that's what Paul meant to convey. That Jesus has all of the properties, if we can say it that way, of God. Okay? So, since it wouldn't be right to say that Jesus has all of the properties of God because that is what God was pleased to do, that would imply that Jesus is a created being, a lesser being, that would go against Trinitarian orthodoxy, etc. Since, since that possibility, therefore, is eliminated, we know that when Paul says the fullness of God, that it can't be that he means Jesus possesses all of the attributes of God. Alright, is everybody tracking with me or do I need to stop? Yeah, good? Alright, that's our toughest bit of theology for today. Alright? Now, if that's the case and we've eliminated that possibility, that that's not what Paul means when he says, in him the fullness of God dwells, then what does it mean? Paul is not meaning to communicate that God was pleased to make his perfections dwell in Jesus. He must mean something else. What does he mean then? Gill goes on to explain that the fullness of God, which is in Jesus, is, and I quote, a dispensatory communicative fullness. By this, Gill means that the Father plans to dispense, and the Father plans to communicate many blessings to His people. And it pleased Him to dispense and to communicate each and every one of these blessings to His people through His Son. Jesus is like the neck of an hourglass through whom all of the blessings which come down to us from above must pass. It is in Jesus and through Jesus that we receive everything the Father desires to give us, including sonship to Him, and including the indwelling of the Spirit. So saying Jesus is all we need doesn't negate or undermine Trinitarianism. Saying Jesus is all we need 
articulates how Trinitarianism works with respect to God's relationship to us. It pleased our triune God to place all dispensatory and communicative fullness in the Son, so that it is through the Son and in the Son that we receive all of the blessings that our triune God has ordained to give us, including a right relationship with the Father and including a right relationship with the Spirit. In Jesus, all dispensatory and communicative fullness um, was pleased to dwell. Now, if this is true then, that in Jesus is all of the dispensatory and communicative fullness of God, then we ought never to move on from viewing Jesus as all-sufficient for us with respect to our salvation and our religious life. We ought never to embrace claims that, yes, the gospel is good, but you need more. Yes, the law of Christ is good, but you need more. There's not enough rules in here. The Christian life is no more and no less than embracing all of who Jesus is to us. That's it. The Christian life is no more and no less than embracing all that Jesus is to us. Now, Jesus is the Christ, and that particularly speaks to the blessings and the benefits he brings. Christ means Messiah, which is anointed one. He is the appointed, prophesied one of the Old Testament through whom God would ultimately fulfill all of his promises. This is why he's called Christ Jesus. Jesus was the name his parents gave him, which God commanded them to, right? But if the name, the title Christ wasn't on his birth certificate, so to speak. We call him Christ Jesus because we mean that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And so we embrace him as the Christ, which means embracing his blessings and his benefits. And we embrace him as Lord also, Christ Jesus the Lord. Or the Lord Jesus. Same thing, that's a title, it's not a name. In other words, Lord wasn't on his birth certificate either. But we embrace him as Jesus the Lord because we recognize that in God's plan to have a kingdom in which righteousness dwells, Jesus has been set over that kingdom according to God's plan. And so he is the Lord appointed over God's people, prophesied that God would set him on David's throne, that he would rule and reign eternally, and that there would be no end to his dominion, his kingdom, and his authority. And of course, that implies also duties and responsibilities, right? For we who live under his reign. So embracing all that Jesus is to us means both embracing the blessings and the benefits of his Christship, if I can say it that way, or his Messiahship to us, and it also means embracing all of our obligations to him as our Lord. So the Christian life is no more and no less than embracing, here's another way to say it, the gospel of Christ and the law of Christ. Right? Embracing all of who Jesus is to us is saying, look, I'm going to embrace all the good news and I'm going to embrace all the duties and responsibilities. And I'm going to come into this relationship with Jesus where he is Christ and Lord. 
I call him Christ Jesus, and I call him the Lord Jesus. And I'm going to live that way. And while there may be some legitimate disagreement among Christians about exactly what are the blessings and benefits of belonging to Christ, and what exactly, specifically, are our duties, there really should be no disagreement among Christians of any denomination that everything we need for our salvation and our religious life has been provided to us in and through Christ. There really should be no disagreement about that. So the only disagreement should be about how exactly we work that out and how exactly we live that out. But it ought to be to the Word of God that we Christians turn to settle even these disagreements and these discussions. Who does the Bible tell us Jesus is? And what does the Bible say about His law? And what does the Bible say about His gospel? What are our duties towards our Lord Jesus? What are the blessings and the benefits that come to us through our Christ, Jesus? This sounds simple and straightforward. And in a sense, it, it really, really is. This is the Christian life. To look here, find out who Jesus is, and what he has done for us as the Christ, and what we owe to him as our Lord. That's the Christian life. Simple as that. It really is simple, but not necessarily easy. It's not necessarily easy, because there are threats to this principle today, as there were threats to that principle in Colossae so long ago that Jesus is all you need. In the first century, there were false teachings of a Judeo-Christian nature creeping into the church, implicitly urging people to neglect and to negate the development of redemptive history, that Jesus came to fulfill all the prophecies and all of the types and all of the shadows so that the types and the shadows are not necessary anymore. There was a Judeo-Christian false teaching coming into the church, which used kind of the same sort of language that was familiar to the Judeo-Christian tradition, but it was trying to undermine this idea that Jesus is all you need. There was also pagan teaching creeping into the church in Colossae, implicitly urging people to mix pagan concepts and superstitions in with their devotion to Christ, leading inevitably to the dilution and to the impurity of their devotion to him. And there were ideologies, Paul calls them in chapter 2 and verse 8, philosophy and empty deceit, human tradition, rooted in a non-Christian worldview or an anti-Christian worldview which would compete with devotion to Christ. So there were all these challenges and this is why Paul says, hey, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Right? Keep it simple, guys. Stay on the right track. Don't go off to the right or to the left. It's real simple. Embrace everything Jesus is to you as your Christ and as your Lord. And all of these things happening around you and all these threats to this very simple task need to be uh, ignored, combated, rejected, whatever, for you to embrace who Jesus is to you as Christ and as Lord his blessings, his benefits, the duties you owe to him. Don't worry about all this other stuff. Stay focused on that one central task. And as that was 
Paul's instruction to them. So that is what we need to hear from this text today. There are many threats to our continual reliance on Christ alone and our devotion to Him alone as sufficient for our salvation and our religious life. Let me ask you, where is your ultimate hope? Anywhere other than the gospel of Jesus? Just as it is with needs that we can say, in a sense you need soap and water, and in a sense you need money, and in a sense you need food, but in another sense Jesus is all you need. So we can say with hope that in a sense you can hope that today will be sunny, you can hope that you'll pass your courses, you can hope this and that, but in another sense our hope should only be in Jesus. Right? Depending on what we mean by that statement. You'll be able to tell that your hope is wrongly anchored and wrongly focused in where it shouldn't be when something happens and it not only disappoints you, it not only hurts you, it not only cuts you deeply, but it truly crushes and truly devastates you. Think about that. Your hope should ultimately be in the gospel of Christ and the gospel of Christ alone. And this doesn't mean, of course, that you can't wish for or pray for other things, but it does mean, really and truly, it does mean that you ought not to be utterly crushed, utterly devastated when other things happen, things that you don't wish for and that you've prayed against. You ought to be able to say in a, in a real and meaningful sense, Though life hurts and things don't always go our way. And sometimes just truly difficult things happen to us. I'm not negating that or trying to make light of that. But we, we really ought to be able to say at any point in time and at all points in time, in a real meaningful sense, the gospel of Jesus is all I need. And what is your guide to your duty? Anything other than the law of Christ? You'll be able to tell that you've started to view other things as your guide to your duty. When you start feeling guilty about things that the Bible doesn't speak a word about. When the pronouncements and the judgments of other people about what makes a good person or a bad person start to loom larger in your mind than what Christ, through his apostles and prophets, has told us is pleasing to him and makes a righteous person, when other people's judgments start weighing in more heavily in your heart and in your mind, you're going to realize that you have left the sufficiency of Jesus as Lord. And that you have begun to embrace extra things and added to God's law. Sure, we do need to work out the implications, good and necessary consequences, if you will, of what Christ has said through his apostles and prophets. For example, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go ahead and just make a point that I assume is non-controversial, that it is uh, sinful to indulge in a heroin habit, though the Bible says nothing about that specifically. Right? We shouldn't use uh, 
recreational drugs like heroin, right? That's working out the implications, working out the good and necessary consequences. So when I say we shouldn't feel guilty about things that the Bible doesn't speak a word to, I'm not talking about working out implications. But there's going to be all of these value systems in the world that are going to tell you if you really want to be a good person, you got to do this. If you really want to be a good person, you got to do that. You're a bad person if you do this. You're a bad person if you don't do that. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Not so fast. What did Jesus say about that? And if we can't work out any good and necessary consequence of it, it's a morally indifferent matter. No matter what anybody tells you. And you have to realize that living as if Jesus is a sufficient lawgiver and a sufficient Lord means naming those things as morally indifferent issues and refusing to put yourself under another lawgiver than Christ Jesus. Make whatever choice you want, let other people make whatever choice they want, but Jesus is Lord and he's a sufficient Lord. And I embrace everything he is to me, but I ain't embracing more than that. Right? This is the Christian life. We need to be careful not to give more weight to our favorite cultural pundits than we give to Christ's apostles and prophets. In other words, be very, very serious about what the Bible tells you righteousness is. And be very, very unconcerned about what the world tells you righteousness is. Don't worry so much about what you're hearing righteousness entails or doesn't entail from other people. Worry about what Christ, through his apostles and prophets, says righteousness entails. And be very, very serious about that. We should be able to say at any time, and at all times, not only the gospel of Christ is all I need, but we should also be able to say at any time and at all times, the law of Christ is all I need. I have entitled this sermon, A Portrait of the Christian Life. Because that's what this verse gives us. A portrait of the Christian life. No one who thinks that Christ alone was not enough to save them in the beginning is truly a Christian. Therefore, the Christian is someone who at some point saw Christ as all-sufficient and received Him as such. All-sufficient. And the Christian is someone then who continues to look to Christ and asks himself, who is he? And then lives accordingly. Sure, there may be some disagreement about exactly what are the blessings and the benefits of belonging to Christ. Sure, there may be some disagreement about what exactly are the duties that we owe to Christ. But the Christian ought never to say, the revelation of Christ given us in the scripture is not sufficient for our salvation in religious life. We need something other than Jesus if we're going to be saved from our sins and make our way through this life righteously. Read this book to supplement it. Listen to this podcast to supplement it. If you really want to be righteous, the revelation of Christ given to you is not enough. You've got to get on board with this idea or that idea or this concept or that principle. Worse, the Christian ought never to say, yes, Jesus is my Savior, so I won't go to hell. 
but that's the extent of his relevance. Of course, we may, and in fact, we ought to, read books, listen to podcasts, think things through, deal with the various issues that people are talking about in our contemporary world that we're coming across in our circles of influence, our family members, our friends. Yes, sure, think these things through. The Christian religion is not a check your brains at the door religion. But as we do, we should ask these questions of everything that we imbibe. Is this consistent with Christ's gospel? Is this consistent with Christ's law? And here are a couple of key ones. Does this, what I'm reading, what I'm hearing, does this undermine the sufficiency of Christ's gospel? Does this undermine the sufficiency of Christ's law? And we should evaluate in the marketplace of ideas everything we imbibe according to this lens, and we should respond accordingly. As I said earlier, it's, it is simple. Not easy, but it is simple. Jesus is all we need. The Christian life is no more and no less than embracing all that Jesus is to us, both as Savior and as Lord, as Christ and as Lord, as we receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, namely as all-sufficient, so walk in Him. God help us in this endeavor.